Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's good to see you today. Um, as you can see in the bumper video, um, we're actually at our last message in this series, uh, Words We Use, How God's Word Shapes Our Words. And basically throughout this series, we've been unpacking this one verse that was on the screen there, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of of the tongue, and we've looked at words we use with God, we've looked at words we use with each other, words we use on mission, and we're gonna close out our series by looking at another message on the words we use with each other, the positive side of all of this, and that is we're gonna look at words of life, speaking words of life. Now the fact is, we live in a really discouraging time. I mean, there's pretty much nothing good on the news this whole COVID thing is heating up again and, and, and we're facing the probability of federal vaccine mandates and mask mandates and possible lockdowns. Violence and murder and crime in major cities is up. Substance abuse is up. Suicide is up. Anxiety disorders are up. People have lost their businesses. Some people who lost their jobs and want to work can't find jobs in their expertise. Some people are being paid not to work and businesses are suffering because they can't find enough workers. I mean, it's just crazy. Day by day, it feels like our freedoms are being chipped away at. Day by day, we're more divided as a nation. Day by day, inflation creeps higher and higher. Day by day, the insanity continues. And on top of that, most of us have personal problems or relational, uh, relationship problems that that, that weigh heavy on us and, and different ones of us face roadblocks and setbacks and uh, dead ends and, and sometimes we just don't know which way to turn. Anxiety weighs us down. It weighs heavy on our hearts. So the question is, is there anything we can do to enable us not just to survive these discouraging days but to actually thrive in these discouraging days? Is there anything that we can do for each other that would, would cause all of this anxiety to lessen even just a little bit. Like, like if I had a scale on, on stage and let's say on one side I stack all of our fears and frustrations and anxiety so that it tips down, the question is what can we put on the other side that will tip the scales back up? What can we put on the other side that will outweigh the anxiety that weighs us down. Well, according to scripture, there is actually is something that will tip those scales, and it's found in Proverbs 12.25. So take your Bible, paper or digital, find your way to Proverbs 12.25. Here's the counterbalance to anxiety. Ready for this? Proverbs 12.25. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Say that out loud with me. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. One more time. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. So this verse is all about how a kind word from us can breathe life, can speak life into people weighed down with anxiety, which will in turn breathe life back into us. Now, 
I know, I can hear you, I can hear you. You're like, really, seriously, that's it? This whole buildup, this big buildup of living in these discouraging and depressing days and how anxiety is weighing on us so heavily and, and, and that's all you got? I mean, a kind word? Ah, that just proves that preachers are so out of touch. I mean, come on, Charlie, I'm really depressed. Things are really bad. Charlie, I'm sorry, but you're just out of touch. A kind word. You gotta be kidding me. And listen, I totally get that. I mean, initially, it kind of hit me that way too. But the truth is, thinking like that shows that we really don't understand what the Bible actually says about words. And what does it say? It says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words are powerful, very powerful. The Bible says God created everything that there is by saying the words, speaking the words, let there be. Let there be light, let there be stars and sun and moon, let there be uh, creatures that swim in the sea, let there be land-dwelling creatures. The Bible says God created everything by the power of his word. And the Bible also tells us that Jesus became flesh. When he became flesh, he was known as the word of God. The word of God became flesh. That's powerful. And now we have scripture, it's written down for us, we hold it in our hands, and uh, the word of God is powerful. It is sharp and it's powerful. It's able to do a deep work at the core of who we are. So biblically speaking, the biblical authors tell us that words are very, very powerful. And so rather than push back against the wisdom of this proverb, we need to lean into the truth of what God says here and let it change us and renew us. I mean, we believe other Proverbs, like the one that's not in the Bible, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, which is a lie out of the pit of hell. I mean, that's a lie, it's an anti-biblical statement. Words can hurt, words can harm, words can do a lifetime of damage, words can kill, words harm, but but words also can heal, they can also heal. So here's my big idea for this morning. Big idea goes something like this, the right word spoken in the right way at the right time can breathe life into other people. The right word spoken in the right way at the right time can breathe life, bring healing into other people. And this is wisdom from above. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word, an encouraging word, cheers it up. How is that possible? Because words are very, very powerful. Now, here's another proverb with uh, a, a very similar message, Proverbs 12, 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What kinds of words bring healing. Well, you know what they are, words of encouragement, words of blessing, words of praise and affirmation, words of support and appreciation, words of comfort, words of hope, words, as the Apostle Paul puts it, words seasoned with grace, words that build up rather than tear down. And God says that all of these kinds of kind words bring healing and wise people know this. Problem is, we really don't believe Proverbs like this. I mean, well, we say we believe it. I mean, after all, it's in the Bible. We're supposed to believe it, right? But you tell me, if we don't really put these things into practice, do we really believe them? 
So that's the question. Years ago, I stumbled across an insight into some research that was done about conversations that it really made me stop and think. And, and this insight comes from a group called the Gottman Institute. And uh, they're not the only ones who have made this observation, but um, they've done a lot of good research on this subject. And, and here's what they say. They say in your conversations, whether at work or with your spouse or in dating or in any relationship, parent, child, whatever, they say there's a ratio in your conversations, a ratio of criticism to encouragement. And they say that for most of us, our default mode is six words of criticism for every one word of encouragement. Six words of criticism for every one word of encouragement. And so this is what this looks like. And again, you and I have conversations with people going on all the time, and this can kind of be a framework that we can use to think through our conversations, but they say that when you encourage someone, like you say, hey, uh, hey, thanks for being a good husband, or hey, thanks for being a son or, or a daughter uh, I can trust, or hey, you did an amazing job on that, on that project, you did an amazing job on that report, I can see you paid a lot of attention to detail and you worked hard on it. Uh, hey, thanks for all you do. They say for every one word of encouragement like that, there are six comments like, why don't you ever listen to me? Like, why can't you ever do a good job? I mean, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? Six to one. And when I saw this, here's what I thought. I, I, I thought, man, this explains a lot. This explains a lot. This explains why so many workplaces are so negative and dysfunctional because the conversations in those workplaces are dysfunctional and negative. And, and when conversations in the workplace are toxic, the workplace environment is going to be toxic. And this explains a lot uh, in why so many marriages struggle. This explains why so many conversations in a marriage are toxic. Constant criticism is toxic, and, and really, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In fact, if, if anyone has ever said anything like this to you, if anyone's ever said, I just can't seem to do anything right in your eyes, I just can't ever do anything right, they're pointing to an environment where they're hearing six to one. And this explains why so many adults still struggle, struggle with the words they heard as children. I mean, they were told they were stupid. They were told that they would never amount to anything. They were told they couldn't do anything right. And reckless words, those reckless words pierced them like swords, pierced their hearts, and those words named them. And they're still struggling with those things today. And for some of you, so many of the things that have been said to you are still distorting you and polluting the way you see yourself and the way you see other people and the way you see certain people. Listen, we need to rewrite that old proverb, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can actually destroy my soul. You see, what's done to you isn't anything like what's done in you. And words can get in you, way deep in you, and they pierce and they go deep, and they leave wounds and scars. Now listen, this is a serious issue. This is very, very serious. Words are very powerful. But here's the good news. The good news is what we're talking about today, words of life, words of encouragement, can help us 
with this six to one problem that we have. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but I wanna highlight one other problem first. You see, there's another problem with all this talk about being more kind and encouraging with our words. And here's the problem. It's like, nobody's gonna push back on this, right? I mean, nobody's gonna argue that we don't need to be better at encouraging one another. Nobody's gonna argue against this. We all think that encouragement is a nice thing to do. It's just not urgent. We all think that encouragement is very, very important, but it's not that important. And that kind of thinking is a problem because if we think that encouragement is a nice thing to do, but it's not urgent, then, then if that's how we think, we're, we're just gonna drift towards six to one, six to one, or 16 to one. You don't naturally drift toward being a person who naturally encourages other people. You have to resolve by God's grace to change the ratio to, uh, to six words of encouragement to every one critique. But we're gonna see even that's not enough. Now let me ask you, as you look back over uh, the last seven days and you think back on all the conversations that you've had this past week, whether they're at home or at work, with your friends, wherever, what was your ratio? Was it six to one, six negatives to one positive? Or was it four to three or three to four? What was your criticism to encouragement ratio? Your words of death uh, versus words of life ratio? See, anxiety, anxiety from the world around us, criticism from the words directed to us weighs a heart down. But God says a kind word of encouragement cheers it up. This is God's word. This is wisdom from above, and wise people know this. Now, all through the book of Proverbs, there's this contrast between wise people and foolish people. And when you come to the New Testament, there's a contrast between spirit-led people and selfishly motivated people. Wise, spirit-led people know that their words can hurt or their words can heal. They know that their words can tear down or build up. They know this and they want to bring their lives more in line with scriptural wisdom and spirit-led conversations. So how do we do that? How do we bring our lives more in line with the words of scripture and more in line with words from the spirit? And to do that, you need to understand three things. First thing is this, you need to understand the scope of these words of life. In other words, who needs kind words, who needs words of encouragement. Truett Cathy, who was the founder of Chick-fil-A, he was really big on encouragement, and he used to say that there's an international sign you can use to determine whether a person needs encouragement or not. And he, Truett Cathy traveled all over the world, all around the world, and, and so he, he saw this, and he said, the international sign that you can use to determine whether a person needs encouragement or not is if they are breathing. <laughs> if they are breathing, they need encouragement. Because all of us, every one of us, we're all plagued with self-doubt and insecurity and anxiety in some form or fashion. Every one of us, and I can prove it. Now, ladies, let me tell you about the men in this room or the men watching this message. Every man wrestles with a question, and you, and you may not know this, but it's true, and men may deny it, but they're lying, okay? 
Every man struggles with the question, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to do this job? Do I have what it takes to be a good leader? Do I have what it takes to be a good provider? Do I have what it takes to be a good husband, a good father? Do I have what it takes? And we go out into a world that is constantly saying to us, no, no, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. And we get beat up. Now listen to this. If we come home at the end of the day and the conversations are six to one at home and we're wrestling with the question, do I have what it takes that's a tough place to live. It's a tough place to live. Now, men, let me flip the question. There's a question that every one of your wives wrestle with every day. And you know what that question is? They're asking, does my husband notice me? Does he notice me? Does he notice who I am? Does he notice what I'm doing? Does he notice how hard I'm working? Does he think I'm pretty? Does he think I'm special? And, and ladies, you gotta bear with us because most of us are clueless. Because we hear that and, and we're like, well, honey, uh, well, sure, you're special. I mean, I married you 25 years ago, didn't I? I mean, I married you, that, of course you're special. I have no idea why I did that accent. <laughs> but, um, but, but the point is, sometimes we men are, are clueless. And that's not a new insight you need to write down. But guys, I can prove to you that ladies are asking the question, do you notice me? And here's why. Because when women get their hair cut or their hair done, there's not a lady in here who runs up to their husbands and says, hey, see, I got my hair cut today. What do you think? Did you notice? Most women don't do that. You know what they do? They wait. This is a cruel game, ladies. It's a cruel, cruel game. And I don't know what the time frame is. I don't know if it's five minutes after they walk in the door or 10 minutes when they walk in the door or 15 minutes or do they wait to the next day and just let the tension build. But at some point the buzzer sounds and when they say, did you notice I got my hair cut? Mm, guys, I just wanna give you some advice. The warning lights on your dashboard should be blinking because you failed the test. Now, not that I've ever done that, of course. I just have heard of other guys who did it and paid for it. Um, the point is, do you notice me? Do you think I'm special? Do you think I'm pretty? That's what women are asking. Now, guys, let me just say something to you real quick, you dads. Dads, your daughters need a lot of affirmation from you. Yes, sons do too. Sons absolutely do. They're not gonna get the big head if you brag on them. Sons need affirmation too. But you know what our society does to young women? It tells them that they're not pretty enough and they're not skinny enough and they're not good enough and they don't measure up to the computer-enhanced image of the supermodel on the magazine rack of the checkout aisle in the grocery store. And they hear that message every day and advertising makes uh, make sure that they hear that message. And if you get so busy with your work and you don't notice your daughter, if you don't tell her every now and then, hey, you're, you are so beautiful. 
you are so wonderful. You are special. You know, I noticed how you helped your mom out today. That was really nice. Thank you so much. If, if you're not doing that, you're leaving your daughter vulnerable. And I think the problem is we, we, we get so busy and weighed down with anxiety ourselves, we just don't see how weighed down other people are. And sadly, many people don't feel good enough about themselves to let you feel good about yourself. Many people don't feel good enough about themselves to let you feel good about yourself. So it's natural for us to default into this six words of criticism for every one word of encouragement. The Bible tells us everybody has a heart weighed down by anxiety in some form or fashion. That's the scope of the truth of this proverb. Everybody in our circles of influence need to hear words of life from us. They need to hear words of encouragement, words of positive affirmation from us because what's our big idea? The right words spoken in the right way at the right time will breathe life into people. Now, what you see here in that big idea is this. It's not just what you say that's life-giving, it's how you say it, right? It's, it's, uh, it's uh, words spoken in the right way at the right time. So, so the second thing you need to understand is that how you say what you say is as important as what you say. How you say it is as important as what you say. And there are two aspects of how we say what we say that can help us season our words with grace. In other words, what do we mean by right words spoken at the right time in the right way? Okay, so first, the right word spoken in the right way. Turn over to Proverbs 15.1, or you can look at it on the screen. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In other words, words of life are gentle words. You speak gently. Okay, so what does gentle mean? And I, I, you're probably thinking, oh, gentle, yeah, like you gotta be super soft-spoken and really sensitive and, and dripping with emotion, kind of gutless and wishy-washy and mamby-pamby. No, 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 no. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you flip over to Proverbs 25, 15, you read, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle word can break a bone. A gentle word can break a bone. Now, one commentator who knows something about Hebrew idioms says to break a bone means to break down the most hardened resistance to an idea that a person may possess. That Hebrew idiom, to break a bone, means to break down hardened resistance to an idea that a person may possess, meaning gentle speech can be bold, it can be direct, it can be pointed, it can be respectfully argumentative, as Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone that asks you to give a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15. Gentle and respectful, that's the idea. But, but let's, look, let's also look at what the word gentle means by looking at its opposite 
It's antonym. The word in the text in chapter 15, verse one, notice it says a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A harsh word is the antonym of a gentle word. So what does the word harsh mean? Well, here's the test. How you talk to people has to be motivated by love, speaking the truth in love. Not by trying to put the other person in their place, not trying to prove that they're wrong and you're right, not belittling them or their ideas. No, the motivation for the conversation has to be love. And a gentle word is bone-breakingly clear and yet in tone and in voice and in motivation, it's kind and respectful and loving. Now here's how you can tell if you're being gentle in what you're saying. Let's say you have to, you're going to someone and you're gonna correct them, which words of life, yes, they're words of comfort, but they're also words of confrontation and correction. We just don't have time to look at all the Proverbs that talk about that. But here's how you can tell if you're being gentle in what you're saying when you have to tell somebody something that they may not wanna hear. Like when a listener says, well, I really didn't wanna hear what you were telling me, but it was obvious to me that you love me and I could tell it was painful for you to tell me that. You see, if when you say something to someone that they may not wanna hear, if they can tell you're speaking the truth in love, if they can tell that it's, it's actually painful for you to say what you're saying, then you're into gentleness. And the irony in all of this is God says there's nothing more persuasive than gentleness. I mean, we think we'll change people's mind by being harsh and forceful. No, 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 the sarcasm, the harsh words, the put-downs, the verbal slams we often employ in our war of words, well, you, you might win the battle, but ultimately, you'll lose the war in the relationship. Harsh words harden hearts. Gentle words soften hearts. Now, Proverbs 15:4 says this, gentle words are our tree of life. But deceitful words, careless words, crush the spirit. So we're talking about tone here. A lot of times it's not what, what we say as much, uh, it's not what we say that crushes the spirit as much as how we say it. It's the tone in which we say it. It's the tone. A lot of times our tone speaks louder than our words. In the book, Taming the Tongue by Jeff Robinson, the book that I recommended for summer reading way back at the beginning of our series. Jeff tells a story about when he was in high school and uh, he ended up in a heated conversation with his baseball coach and Jeff was upset that the coach moved him out of the leadoff slot in the team's batting order. And so he became very uh, proud and boastful and he's running a list of all his accomplishments and how he had been batting at the top of the lineup since he was in T-ball and the coach listened and then he said, you know, Jeff, the problem with you is I can't hear what you're saying because your attitude is talking so loud. I can't hear what you're saying because your attitude is talking so loud. And the coach turned and walked away. Now, that's a gentle answer. It's pointed. It's direct. It's bone-breakingly truthful. 
but it wasn't said in a harsh tone. And you know how this goes. You know how tone sets off a, a lot, most of our wars. Like, like, you know, you could go home t- tonight and, and uh, you know, your spouse say, um, you do remember that tomorrow is the day we take out the trash, right? And you could say that and everything is okay. Or you could say, you are gonna remember to take the trash out, aren't you? I mean, last week you forgot. And then, of course, then tone matches tone. You know, there's a return volley. Like, what do you think, I'm stupid? Just because I forgot one week doesn't mean I'm gonna forget every week. I know the trash needs to go out. Yeah, sometimes it's not what we say is the problem. It's how we say it. It's the sharp, sarcastic, cutting, careless, reckless words. And they never breathe life into anybody. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Salt makes some foods taste better. Gotta have salt on an egg as far as I'm concerned. The right words spoken in the right way at the right time make conversations flow better. So now, so the first aspect we need to look at is tone. The second is timing, timing. Proverbs 15, 23 says, a person finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word? Proverbs 25, 11 says, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And nobody knows what that is referring to. Apples of gold, nobody knows what that means. But the word apt here is a Hebrew word that actually has to do with timing. So you remember our big idea, the right word spoken in the right way, that's tone. At the right time, that's timing. It encourages the hearer. Because you see, your words can be gentle and kind. They may be true enough, but if they're not apt, if they're spoken at the wrong time, those untimely words can add more weight to an already anxiety-heavy heart. I remember hearing my uh, friend Chris Dolson tell about a time when his wife's mother passed away. His wife's mother's name, Becky. And Becky's mother passed away when she was 13 years old. Um, She had cirrhosis of the liver. She'd been an alcoholic for most of her adult life. And she she left behind a bunch of kids and, and a husband grieving. And Becky was the only girl in the home at that time. Well, after the funeral was over and the family had all gathered, a woman came up to Becky and she said, well, I guess you're gonna have to learn how to cook now, aren't you? You're gonna have to learn how to cook. Mother just passed away. True words, she was gonna have to learn to cook. But very bad timing. And it was like someone pouring alcohol on an open wound. And she remembers that instance to this day. The right words, though, spoken in the right way at the right time can make a huge difference in somebody's life. Now, most of us know people who are going through a very difficult time in their life. So a a, a word of encouragement You can speak life into somebody through a card or a text or an email, and that can mean a lot, especially if you know someone who's lost a member of their family. Maybe they lost a grandmother or a grandparent or a spouse or a son or a daughter or a parent or some other family member that they were very close to. And birthdays and anniversaries and Christmases and Thanksgiving, these are are especially difficult times, and you know that. 
and a thoughtful word, a timely word on or around those days can speak life into, into people. Now there's one other angle on this thing about apt words. Um, and this is a little bit different, but Proverbs 24, 26 says an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Kiss on the lips. Now this is the only place in the Bible where a kiss on the lips is mentioned, which doesn't mean you can't do that, by the way. I particularly like kisses on the lips, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. In that day and time, the actual, uh, it actually meant something different than it does now, because when we read this, it sounds like uh, it's nothing more, it's just saying um, uh, being honest is the loving thing to do, but it's much more than that. Herodotus, an ancient Greek writer and historian, tells us about the cultural meaning of that phrase at that time. Herodotus says, when one man meets another, it's easy to see if the two men are equals. For then, without speaking, they kiss each other on the lips. So equals would kiss on the lips. If one was slightly lower in rank, they would kiss on the cheek. If there was a great difference in rank, uh, the, the, the humbler man bows and kneels before the others. And the that's the reason the commentators say that this is actually a pretty interesting verse. Because what it's actually saying, it is, it's, it's saying this. It's the responsibility of the communicator to adapt what he or she is saying and how he or she is saying it so that the listener can understand. Using the right tone, the right time. To make sure you don't just say, well I told them the truth and that's all that really matters. Well, no, that's not really true. The question is, did you speak the truth in a way that the hearer could actually hear? It's your job to adapt what you have to say, to find the right words to say so the person can understand you. So think of it this way. Here's a husband and wife in a family. Here's the husband. He comes from a family in which communication patterns were very indirect. People weren't open about their feelings. Things were not said out in the open, and they were, the things were just kind of hinted at in very vague ways. And here's the wife. She comes from a family in which people just blurted things out. They just said what they thought needed to be said without giving much thought to how it was said. And most of what was said, especially in tense times, was said at, at a high volume in an emotionally charged way, which led to a heated argument and a whole family blow up. But then the amazing thing was nobody's feelings were hurt. When it's all over, nobody ever thought about it anymore. So you got this husband and wife and they're coming from these different backgrounds in their home. So uh, what if the husband uses his, fa his family's way of communicating with his wife? Well, here's what happens. Over and over you hear this, she says, I had no idea you felt that way. And he says, I told you. She goes, no, you didn't. I, I had no idea, but I told you. Well, he did, but he didn't. He didn't find her lips. If he talks to her indirectly, little hint here, little hint there, she's not gonna hear him. She can't hear him. They're on two different channels. And what if she uses her, family way, her family's way of communicating with him, well, you have a little conversation that goes like this. She says, why are you calling a lawyer? 
I thought you wanted a divorce. You screamed, I want a divorce. Oh, I didn't mean that. I was just upset. It's no big deal. And he says, well, no, it was a big deal to me. See, she hadn't found his lips. When it says an apt word is like apples of gold in settings of silver, or a fitting word is like a kiss on the lips, it means that our words need to be adapted and lovingly crafted to the personality, the background, the circumstances, and the needs of the other person. In other words, it's your responsibility to do everything you can to, to make sure that what you say is hearable to the other person. So the words you say and how you say them, the tone you use, the timing you choose, both these kinds of things determine whether your words will be heard as words of life or words of death, as words of, that heal or words that hurt, words that weigh, you, weigh down or words that cheer up. The right word spoken in the right way at the right time can breathe life into anxious hearts. Now, we began this series on the words we use by looking at the warning uh, the apostle James gives us about our tongues. And you may remember James 3, he says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is that part of the body that messes us up more than anything else. It's the part of the body that defiles us. It sets on fire the course of our lives and it is set on fire by hell itself. And then he says, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. And you, you hear that and you go like, why, why even bother with this series? I mean, we, this, it's, it's, this is hopeless. It's just hopeless. So the question is how can our tongues be healed so that our words bring life and not death to the people around us? And in Proverbs, there's only one verse. There's only one verse in Proverbs that gives us a clue to the answer to that question and it's found in Proverbs 16, 23 where it says a wise man's heart guides his mouth. A wise man's heart guides his mouth. Now Jesus spoke directly to that in Matthew 12, 34 when he says make, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks out of what is in the heart. Our words flow out of what is in our hearts. And we talked about this in the second message of the series, but it bears repeating here again because um, listening to a message like this, it's very tempting to walk away and say, okay, I'm just, all right, I, I just get, need to get really serious about my words. I'm gonna really work on this every night. I'm gonna do like an inventory of everything I said during the day and I'm gonna see what my ratio of criticism to encouragement was during the day and I'm gonna look at that and I'm gonna try to do better the next day and I'm really gonna watch my words. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, nobody changes unless they want to change, right? But the truth is, willpower's not enough. Just trying to do better isn't enough. Now, you remember the tongue assignment that we started with way back in the beginning? Uh, the tongue assignment was for one week, don't gossip or repeat negative information about anybody. Don't complain or grumble. 
Don't blame shift or make excuses at all about anything. Don't defend yourself or make excuses no matter what. And don't boast about anything. Now, if you're like me, I didn't even get through the rest of that Sunday without failing miserably. And it was my suggestion that we do this assignment. Now, that's why James said no one can tame the tongue. That is, no one can tame the tongue by willpower. You can't tame the tongue in your own strength. You can't tame the tongue by making promises to yourself and to others that you will do better. Can't be done. Jesus says, the book of Proverbs says that ultimately, the only thing that can heal your words is to change what fills your heart. Again, Jesus says, what fills the heart determines what and how you speak. He says, all of our mouth problems are heart problems. So, exactly what is the heart? Now, if you've been around here any length of time, you know that according to the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions. It's not just the seat of the emotions. No, when the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about, well, the the heart, according to the Bible, is the control center for your whole self. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about what you most hope for, what you most love, what gives you meaning in life. It's talking about the part of your being that sets the trajectory of what you're really living for, what you're really looking for to give you significance and security and satisfaction in in life. That's your heart, the control center. And Jesus says, out of the overflow of all of that, all our problems come. So a change in our words has to flow out of a change in our hearts, and a change in our heart will only occur with a real personal encounter with the gospel. So number three is you you, you need to understand how the gospel reshapes our words, how the gospel reshapes our words. Now, you see, when, when Jesus came into the world, people said of him, Never did a man speak like this, John 7, 46. Never did we hear anyone speak like Jesus. No one ever used words like Jesus. You go and look at everything that Jesus said. There's not one unnecessary word, not one unapt word, not one unkind word, not one untruthful word. No one ever spoke like Jesus. But it's more than that because Jesus wasn't just a great example of speaking words of life. Now, according to the Bible, Jesus himself is the word. He is the word of God. John 1 tells us that. Hebrews 1 tells us that. In fact, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the final word. The author of Hebrews says, God has spoken in many, to us in many times, in many ways, many places, but he's spoken to us finally in his son. Scripture says Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Those are letters of the alphabet. What does that mean? It means that he's the whole dictionary when it comes to words of life. He's the whole lexicon. He's the whole alphabet. He's the word and the only word that will satisfy the infinite hunger of our hearts. Why? Why is he the final word? Why is he the only thing that will heal our hearts and therefore our mouths? Well, the answer is when Jesus was on the cross... He got the ultimate silent treatment from his heavenly father. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, 
my God, why aren't you speaking to me? I'm crying out to you and I, and, and I don't hear anything. You're silent. There's a complete breakdown in communication between the father and son. And Jesus got the cosmic silent treatment. And oh my goodness, think about, think about what that was like for Jesus. I've heard commentators say that that was worse than the pain, physical pain. Because here's Jesus he had enjoyed every single day, intimate communication with his heavenly father. And now it's all been cut off. And he gets the silent treatment. Now, here, you see, you and I have been abusing each other with our words for so long. And we've made such a mess out of our society because of our words, because of the way that we've slashed each other with our words, the way that we've used our words as swords to pierce hearts. And it's us. We deserve the silent treatment from God. We deserve to be judged for our words. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 37, for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. He said, every idle word spoken will be brought up on judgment day. Now, in other words, we are the ones that deserve the condemnation. But the gospel is Jesus took all that for us. And because Jesus received the ultimate silent treatment, you and I can now receive God's words to us from the outside that bring life and healing to our hearts. What, what word am I talking about coming from the outside? This, what I'm about to say, this is God's word spoken to you, over you, and it should define who you are and what you do every single day of your life. And God is saying to you every single day of your life, you are my beloved child, in you I'm well pleased. And you say, well, wait a minute. I know the Father said that to Jesus. Yes, the Father said that to Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit came down on Jesus, and Jesus heard the Father say, you are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. I am very delighted in you. He said that to Jesus. He didn't say it to us. Oh, no, no, no. He said it to us. The Apostle Paul has the audacity to say in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Same thing. The Spirit that lives inside us bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We've been adopted into God's family. We are forever his child, Unlike religion, unlike other religions that say, well, if you live a good life, a good enough life, then maybe when you get to the end of your life, God, well, he might accept you into his heaven. Christianity is nothing like that because, here's the deal, because Jesus got the silent treatment, because Jesus took on himself the condemnation that we deserved. You can hear the word from outside that you most need to hear, the word that wells up from the spirit inside us, the word that will heal our hearts and heal our mouths. You can hear the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit, God saying to you, I'm delighted in you. I love you. You are my child and you always will be my child. Those are the words of life we most need to hear. Those are the words of encouragement, of positive affirmation, the words that come from God. And if you hear that, 
to the degree that it resonates in your soul, to that degree you won't need to put people down anymore. You won't need to gossip anymore. You won't need to tear people down in order to build yourself up. Remember I said many people don't feel good enough about themselves to let you feel good about yourself. If you let God's words of life define who you are, if what he says about you sinks deep into the core of your being so that his affirmation of you means more to you than the approval of others, then finally you'll be free to encourage other people. You'll be free to speak life to other people. You'll be free to affirm others. You'll be free to speak graciously to others because you have heard God's personal word of affirmation to you. You are my beloved child. And the more that good news rules in your heart, the more your words will bring healing and life to those you rub shoulders with every day. Your words will be the right words. Your tone will be gentle and respectful. Your timing will be guided by the Spirit. Because the fact is, a new heart means a new mouth. And when we kind of backslide away from this, it means we've forgotten our identity in Christ. We've forgotten who we are. A new mouth will change the natural six to one criticism to encouragement ratio to six words of encouragement for every one word of gentle, respectful critique. And that's how the power of the gospel reshapes the power of our words. Amen. Father God, thank you for your word and how throughout this series we have seen how your word, you have given us your word for many reasons, but you've given us your word so that your word might shape our words. And as we come to the close of this series, Lord, we don't want to just move on and forget all of this. Lord, we're on a journey to become more and more like Jesus. Never let us forget that one of the most important things about being on this journey with Jesus is that our words would sound like Jesus, that our words would sound like spirit-prompted words of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Continue to do your work in our hearts. And when we forget, draw us back, Holy Spirit. Assure us that we are still your, the, our Father's child and we always will be. In Jesus' name, amen.